We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Well, welcome to this Water Cooler Conversation. In 2014, I commissioned tonight's guest to write a monograph for us. Dr Oliver Hartwich had moved to Wellington from the CIS uh, in Sydney to take charge of the New Zealand Initiative two years earlier. It was a very exciting time. The New Zealand National Party government of John Key and Bill English had embarked on some serious reform in taxation, public spending, welfare and even industrial relations. Now, this was something of an ex- exception at the time. Paul Kelly, who's here this evening, had written uh, often and long about the reform drought or the reform holiday that had been we'd experienced in Australia. And uh, there was a serious debate as to whether reform would ever be possible again. But the, uh, the government of Keys and, and English was showing that it could be done. What a difference eight years makes. Things now are very different indeed. Oliver wrote in The Australian on Friday, In all, the picture that emerges is the country in precipitous decline. That would be alarming enough. What makes it even more so is a perception that the core, private and public institutions lack the understanding of the severity of the crisis or the ability to counteract it. New Zealand needs to be careful not to turn into a failed state. That does not mean it should expect civil unrest, but a period of prolonged and seemingly unstoppable decline across all areas in public life. What happened to turn New Zealand from hero to zero in just eight years? Oh, I think it was even faster. Thanks, Nick. I think it happened in five years since the 2017 election, basically. And you mentioned uh, the Quiet Achievers book that I wrote um, in 2014, and you mentioned I moved there in 2012. And uh, I recall, actually, at the time, moving from Sydney to Wellington felt fantastic because I escaped the madness of the Australian rut and Gillard years, and I thought, okay, I've arrived. I finally have adult government. Before that, I lived under Tony Blair in England, before that, under Gerhard Schröder in Germany. So actually, after 20 years in the wilderness... Finally, adults in charge. (laughs) And it was great. And it lasted for five years. And I thought I had finally found a good political home. And then we had a change of government. And uh, you may recall 2017, uh, Labour was down to 20% in the polls. And then six weeks before the election, they panicked. And the deputy leader, Jacinda Ardern, becomes leader. Suddenly, the party polls 36-37%. And that was enough to form a coalition with New Zealand First, That was Winston Peters, and with the support of the Greens, she had the seats she needed. And for the first term, well, it was a government characterized by crisis management, because we had the Christchurch attacks, uh, we had um, White Island, volcanic eruption, and then we had COVID. And we have a prime minister, to her credit, who is extremely good when it comes to communications, and she did this crisis management extremely well. And... That is probably the only thing she can do really well. But it was enough to win her 50% in the next election in uh, 2020. And back then, I mean, at the time of the first lockdown, 77% of New Zealanders believed the country was going in the right direction, and a record value in that survey. 
And so she won this absolute majority. And Winston Peters is out of parliament. She doesn't need the Greens, but she has their support anyway, just in case. And so we have a country now with no written constitution, with no upper house, with a government that can effectively do whatever it wants to do. And it does, because there are no checks and balances. It's basically an elected dictatorship. And Labour, of course, and Jacinda, they know that they will never have this chance again, because under MMP, our stupid electoral system, which we inherited from Germany, thank you very much, um, this will never happen again. Uh, I think it's important to sort of put the context around that, which you've partly done there. So checks and balances, of course, are very important. And, and what you're saying is that New Zealand just structurally lacks some of those. It has no constitution. It's got no upper house. It doesn't have uh, you know, federal system like we've got here of governments at different levels. That's the issue, is it? That is the issue. That is actually the reason why New Zealand um, went for MMP, this electoral system, because once you introduce MMP, you will never have proper majorities again. That's what they thought. So basically, it is a method to prevent any kind of radical policy making. They never thought that under MMP, you would ever get an absolute majority again. The reason why New Zealand got MMP is, of course, to prevent another Robert Muldoon. Because um, that was the last time that the country was basically on the brink, and they never wanted to go back to that again. So that's why they introduced that electoral system. What they never did was they never introduced a constitution. There is no federalism. There is no upper house. There is a very weak local government. So it's an extraordinary element of power in New Zealand politics, which only and usually gets moderated by a coalition government. Now we don't have that. Look, we can get into the details in a minute of the COVID handling, which we saw a bit of here. Uh, well, you, you were in the news a lot, actually. We saw it was kind of like the uh, don't go there sort of it, the, uh, option for us, uh, New Zealand lockdowns, although we went pretty close, of course, in some states. We'll get into that. We want to talk about the Maori uh, issue and how that's been managed. But first, look, let me... Let me you, you, you as a think tank, the New Zealand Initiative, you are not... Uh, uh, politically aligned, you are a, a politically neutral think tank. So let's think about this in in pure public policy terms. What are the things that have gone wrong? Why have they not? Why has the Ardern government been so spectacularly unsuccessful in uh, reforming the things they said to reform housing, for instance? Uh, and uh, and what's gone wrong? I mean, what what? How would you analyse the public policy mistakes that have been made? Well, first of all, you are right. We are not politically aligned with any party. Uh, we are on the side of good policy and we are on the side of sound economics. Uh, we are not really seeing any of that, and that puts me into a natural opposition to this current government. But other than that, I would be happy to work with them. Um, so what's gone wrong? I think if you look back at 2017, you find the answer. Labour had polled at around 20% for a long, long time. There was absolutely no chance, they thought, even themselves, that they would form the next government. That they won a majority was a complete fluke, a fluke that was caused by Jacinda taking over the leadership six weeks before the election. But if you poll for, 20, uh, for, for a long time at 20% constantly, you don't really think you've got a chance. You don't actually have to then engage in serious policymaking because, you know, it's never going to happen anyway. And so they didn't do any serious policymaking. So on the back of an envelope at a party conference, they decided, for example, we're going to build 100,000 affordable homes. And actually, the day before that, 
they thought it was going to be 50,000. And then at the party conference at night, they decided 100,000 sounds better. So the policy was not costed. It was not properly designed. But there was no chance they would be in government anyway. So it's fine. 100,000 sounds good. And basically, that's the element of policymaking that was prevalent in the Labour Party before 2017. Yeah, and then suddenly you find yourself in government. And then you've promised 100,000 homes. You have speculated in opposition that you might just get away with the single mandate for price stability for the Reserve Bank because wouldn't it be nice to also have unemployment as another target? Well, when you're an opposition party and you are free to speculate, all of this is fine. I mean, that's what student politicians do. When you're suddenly in government, it becomes a bit of a different story. So if you look at the first term, basically nothing got done. They had, by some estimates, about 200 working groups just trying to figure out, okay, this is what we promised, what are we going to do now? And then they didn't deliver. And after two years of Kiwi Build, they had built, I think at the time it was about 400, 500 homes. Chelsea, correct me if I'm wrong. It might have been 50. Um, and then they fired the housing minister. Um, but they kept the policy. And then another year later, the new housing minister said, well, actually, we, let's not talk about targets anymore. It's an ambitious policy. So basically, they got rid of the 100,000 homes target, but they still celebrate this policy. There were some really comical elements. The new housing minister produced a video for another housing scheme they invented where they housed a total of eight families. And they produced a video, a long YouTube video, to celebrate the great success we have built homes for eight families. I mean, you couldn't make it up. And so there was a complete lack of preparation. When I wrote Quiet Achievers, I said one of the key successes of the key English government was preparation. There was absolutely zero preparation on the Labour Party side. And that explains why they didn't get anything done. And then people started grumbling, of course. And had it not been for COVID, I think we would have had a one-term government because um, the, the National Party was actually in the lead. They had a parliamentary majority in the opinion polls prior to COVID. I think had it not been for COVID, this government would have been kicked out as the least successful in recent memory. Well, let's deal with COVID then. Ardern was probably the biggest lockdown enthusiast in the Western world. How did her approach to that policy develop and how did it? How did she continue along that really authoritarian line without the people of New Zealand turning around and revolting? Yeah, what happened there was, um, you remember that in March 2020, we had all of these reports from Italy, from New York, from China, of course, and nobody knew what this new virus was going to be like and how deadly it was going to be. The only thing that we in New Zealand knew and that our government knew was that we weren't prepared for anything because um, we have a hospital system that is simply not fit for purpose. We have among the lowest numbers of ICU beds in the developed world. So uh, New Zealand has about three per 100,000 population. I think Germany has about 30. Um, don't know about Australia, but you definitely have more than us because we are at the bottom of the OECD league table. So the government knew that if this virus comes in and it's uh, a little bit more dangerous than the flu, then our hospital system will collapse. So what can we do? Well, first of all, we also realized we didn't have any PPE. Um, we didn't even have enough flu vaccinations in the country. And the government knew all of this. And so the easiest option was just to close the borders, put everybody into a really strict lockdown for six weeks until the virus had no chance anymore. And uh, that was so successful. And because she is such a wonderful communicator, 
and we were all a team of five million. We had daily press conferences and um, she did this really well again. And 77% of New Zealanders said, well, this is just wonderful. We're going in the right direction. We're protected from every evil and we've got a great leader to follow. And she was so successful. I mean, the virus didn't dare to cross our border anymore. <laughs> and so and then they started believing their own spin. So suddenly you were the role model. Suddenly the New York Times writes great articles about New Zealand. It's a country that beats COVID. Well, it's an island nation and it's easier to kind of shut the border. Anyway, um, they believed their own spin. And it was really hard to change the communication, which we see now. So I've always said, well, it is relatively easy to lock down an island nation. It is much harder to reopen it, especially when at some stage you just accept, okay, this is endemic now, as in every other country. But, you know, if you play this game for long enough, then you kind of build capital. And it's a bit like, um, you know, you do something for a long, long time and you realize actually you're not getting any better at it. But you wouldn't give up your career now just because you realize you're bad, because you've invested so much. And it's a bit like that with New Zealand. You build up this kind of capital, and then you don't really want to be honest with yourself and say, okay, this is all a mistake. And actually, it's this kind of path dependence. So you've invested so much into this policy, you can't turn around. So that's what happened. Um, so I think it was a policy driven by panic, a policy out of a realization that we weren't prepared for anything, that our hospital system couldn't cope. And then in the end, they believed it. Easy as that. We've noted here at uh, the Mendes Research Centre how many you know, basic freedoms were surrendered in this country to varying degrees in various states in the cause of fighting COVID and expressed the hope, of course, that once COVID was over or at least under control, that those freedoms would be returned uh, What's the picture like in New Zealand? Do you think that this will, in the end, represent as a permanent incursion on our freedoms? Or will it be just temporary? If it's temporary, it will still be a very long temporary. So in New Zealand, COVID isn't over. Uh, we have only just arrived in Sydney, and it's nice to be in a normally functioning city again. In New Zealand, you still have to wear masks everywhere you go. So in New Zealand, um, it feels like maybe not 2020, but 2021. We are a little bit behind the curve, I guess. Um, the implications for freedom and the implications for how this country works are profound. They were, I can give you a few examples. So there was a court case about the legality of the first days of lockdown because a lawyer actually in Wellington brought the case to the high court arguing that actually there was no legal grounds for the lockdown until day eight or nine when the government changed policy and quickly legislated for it. The thing was taken to the High Court. The High Court said, yes, there was absolutely no foundation for the first eight days of lockdown. The reporting in the media of that case was that the lockdown was pretty legal. <laughs> okay. Another case, we had, um, of course, a hard uh, border and a border closure. It was ridiculous, actually, to see how New Zealand blocked out its own citizens. They could not come back. And no justification was good enough to actually open the border and find a place in MIQ, managed isolation and quarantine. It was a lottery, a lottery of misery that kept really thousands of New Zealanders locked out of their home, sometimes stranded, basically stateless in countries for which they didn't have any visa anymore. And only when there was massive public pressure on the government did they occasionally consider 
individual cases. And the most prominent case was Charlotte Bellis. Charlotte Bellis, a New Zealand journalist who used to work in Qatar and then um, moved to Belgium with her Belgian boyfriend and got pregnant but couldn't stay in Belgium because she didn't hold a visa for Belgium. And then she tried to get back into New Zealand, couldn't get a place in MIQ. She was pregnant. She was desperate. And in her desperation, because she had previously reported from Afghanistan, the Taliban gave her a visa. And so after that became public, and we said, well, actually, New Zealand government, are you less kind than the Taliban? And then the government actually started making claims about Charlotte Bellis, and we offered her something which wasn't true. They had to apologize for that too. And grudgingly, after a couple of weeks of intense media campaigns, Charlotte Bellis got a place. And then she could actually return to New Zealand and give birth to her baby. So this is how the New Zealand government, the government of kindness and well-being, treats its own citizens. It is astonishing. So if you're asking whether there are any long-term effects, well, the scariest thing that happened out of the whole COVID experience is actually to show how much people are willing to swallow and what extraordinary measures the New Zealand people are willing to accept. I wouldn't have thought this possible. I always thought when I moved to New Zealand, I'm moving basically from one Commonwealth country to another. And there are certain things in the tradition of the Commonwealth and of the common law that I would have thought are so elementary that no country would give them up that easily. I was wrong. You grew up in in Germany. Uh, you were there. You grew up before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, would it be going too far to say that some of the measures we have seen both in New Zealand and in Australia over COVID are eerily close to some of the uh, measures and techniques that would have been introduced in in communist East Germany? Well, we haven't got a Stasi yet in New Zealand. Um, We haven't built a... Oh, yeah. Now we haven't built a wall yet. I mean, an island makes it pretty hard anyway. Um, No, I think that comparison goes too far. Um, But you did say... I I, I raised that because I remember you saying... When we were talking during the the in the middle of COVID, you said that it it did it did have an eerie resonance. Yes, but the eerie resonance is not so much what the government does because I think there is a difference between the communist government of East Germany and what Jacinda Ardern does in New Zealand. The problem is actually more the conformity of opinion that nobody dares to challenge anything anymore. That is the parallel I see with East Germany. I think otherwise it would be ridiculous and unfair to compare. Jacinda Ardern to Erich Honecker, um, she's not a communist dictator. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. But the climate, the political climate, where people actually censor themselves and don't speak freely anymore, where the media doesn't question stuff anymore, because we can talk about the media in New Zealand as well. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes.
New Zealand's didn't have a hugely diverse media market anyway, did it? Four daily newspapers, every one of which I think editorialised in favour of electing the Ardern government is pretty, pretty, pretty sympathetic to to that government. Apart from that, you've got well, News Talk ZB, one which, which on a good day might be a, a little bit feisty, uh, and then nothing. You, you mean you've got no Sky News, you've got no Spectator, you've got no Australian. Yeah, that's the other parallel with East Germany, of course. At least in East Germany, they could receive West German television, except for the area around Dresden. Um, Dresden actually was called during these times the Valley of the Clueless, because they didn't have access to West German television. Um, yeah, New Zealand is a bit like that, but it's never been different. Actually, when I moved to New Zealand, um, I started reading the New Zealand newspapers. I tried to. Um, it's really hard. So I, I've lived in four countries now, and I have a habit of still following the news from all four countries. So every morning I read my German newspapers, my British newspapers, great fun these days, and, uh, of course, the Australian newspapers, and then I check the weather report on the Dominion Post. Um, so... <laughs> The New Zealand media are terrible in that sense because they are also underfunded. Um, that's not a contradiction um, to the public interest journalism fund. I, I say this just as a matter of fact. There is very limited money involved in journalism in New Zealand, and therefore the level of reporting is actually very poor. And the total of the New Zealand media scene has, by my calculations, about five full-time foreign correspondents, international correspondents. So you read our newspapers, and um, by international standards, they're really poor. Okay, you can say it's a small country. You wouldn't expect a fantastic media scene. Well, I would say compare with Swiss papers, it's a small country too. Compare with Danish papers, even Iceland, I think, is a more interesting press. How important is that? I mean, is, is that a factor in, in poor government in New Zealand, that they don't have that? Yes, because you get away with more. And it's not just that, it's also a decline in civics education. So we documented this with a publication um, just before the COVID lockdown. So we did a representative survey, asked a thousand New Zealanders, I think it was a dozen questions or so about basic facts of New Zealand democracy. So um, we asked, how do you get a seat in parliament? Which parties are in parliament? And uh, my favorite question was actually whether... New Zealand has a defense alliance with Britain, which a majority of New Zealanders believed, and somebody should tell the Brits. Um, <laughs> so there is a very limited degree of civics knowledge in New Zealand, and there is an even more limited degree of media diversity. And when you put the two together, it is relatively easy to manipulate a public, and a public that will then go for just you know, pledges of kindness and well-being and goes for a very good communicator who is good at crisis management and smiles a lot. But the level of discourse, the level of debates is very, very limited when you then, on top of all of that, have a government that also actually forces the media to take positions on certain positions. Well, that becomes difficult. Well, let's come to the, the issue of, of Maori, Maori self-governance, uh, separatism, whatever you want to call it. Can you... Give us the the basic 101 of where New Zealand is heading in this direction. Okay, I have to be careful um, because I have actually tried to stay out of this for the first few years in New Zealand because I think from experience there are some issues in public discourse where you as a recently arrived foreigner should actually be quite careful and ideally just 
leave it to the locals to take the lead in these debates. And I did that for the first year, few years because I think any discussions on race with a German accent sound terrible. Um, um, <clears throat> more recently, I must say, it is absolutely impossible to avoid the topic because it now is in every single policy issue. So even if I would like to stay out of it, I can't anymore. And then um, the problem on top of that is, of course, that you easily get misunderstood. So the moment you enter into these debates, of course, someone will always say, well, this is obviously racist what you're saying there. Well, um, I have lived in four countries. My wife is a Malaysian-born Chinese-Australian. I've never really thought of myself racist. Um, I've actually thought of myself as a kind of very old-fashioned classical liberal who believes in equal rights for everybody. Um, I'm a great I'm a believer in democracy for all its flaws, and I think there should be equal voting rights. And um, that's roughly where I'm coming from. So just as a preface before you think I'm a racist. Um, so the Maori debate, um, first of all, I would say it is a debate not driven by Maori, believe it or not. Because I think actually the majority of Maori are uncomfortable with what's happening. They are just as uncomfortable as non-Maori New Zealanders. Um, it is perhaps not even a question of political Maoridom, although that plays a role. I think it is a deeply ideological left-wing issue. So it's a small circle of left-wing politicians who find this fashionable to go on the Maori bandwagon and now try to divide the country along racist lines. And it's something that comes probably more out of the United States and their critical race theory than anything in New Zealand. So with that prologue, um, so what's happening? We have a, a United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So that's just a declaration. It's not even a treaty. And New Zealand, under John Key, in 2015, signed up to that declaration. Now, we discussed it actually with James Allen, um, who wrote a report on this a few weeks ago. And um, in his view, actually, this declaration and even New Zealand signing up to that has absolutely no legal implications for New Zealand. You can still make your own independent policy decisions and uh, you would have to ratify anything in this declaration anyway. The government takes a different position. The government says, no, we have signed up to this and now we're going to implement this in our way. And so in the first Ardern term, they commissioned a report. The report is called Hepuapua. And Hepuapua Maori um, means break a wave, a break in the waves, basically. So it's a complete reversal of some principles of representative democracy. And they were trying to make this UN declaration more concrete. They knew it was controversial. And you can see how aware of that they were because they hid away from their coalition partner. So Winston Peters, even though he was on a coalition with Labour, didn't know of the existence of this government document. It was prepared in secret. We only found out after the 2020 election that this document exists. And I discussed it with someone high up in New Zealand's first, New Zealand first um, administration, and um, they didn't know. They had no idea this document was being prepared. So what's in it? In it is basically a prescription for a complete racialization of New Zealand public policy. So everything is now supposed to be with a Maori, non-Maori lens attached to it. You can see the first results of that. So first of all, since um, last Friday, we have two health systems in the country. We have one health system for non-Maori New Zealanders. So that's about 85% of the population. 
and the other 15% get their own separate health system. And it's not just a separate health system, it's actually one that effectively has a veto power on the other 85%. We have seen now the practical consequences <clears throat> just in the last few days. They have set aside $500 million for some research for Maori health. $100 million out of that will be set aside to study the implications of the position of the sun and the moon on Maori depression. So it's that kind of stuff that is now being financed out of this. Another example, three waters. So the management of um, freshwater, wastewater, stormwater. Um, probably like in Australia, in New Zealand, councils have financed the pipes for a long time, for decades really, basically since the beginning of modern New Zealand. And so ratepayers have financed the infrastructure to deal with these three waters. The government has run a scare campaign arguing that drinking water is no longer safe in New Zealand, which, by the way, is not true. And under the pretense of cleaning up the water and investing in water infrastructure, I mean, this is a pretense, they are now giving it to four regional water entities. So the councils will be forced to give up their assets, sometimes worth hundreds of millions of dollars, as in the case of Auckland, water care, and they will be transferred into these four new regional bodies. And now comes the rub. The bodies will be governed by a 50-50 split between Maori and councils. So Maori, even though they have absolutely no ownership in the water assets, will be given 50% on the selection committee. That's the first tier of governments. The second tier of governments, the first tier will then select a selection panel. And the selection panel will appoint the boards, the directors of the boards of these four companies. And so what happens is actually that ownership is taken away from councils. They will nominally keep a share, but that's really just a nominal share because they have absolutely no rights anymore. They don't have keep the ownership. They don't keep the assets anymore. They get no compensation to speak of. And Maori will be in charge of 50% of the um, decision making. And the other 50% on the boards of these companies will also have to sign up to making decisions in accordance with the treaty and however the government interprets that. Now, you can see that you would like to include Maori in consultations on water. Um, there is a case you can make under the treaty that they should be consulted. And of course, they've got a treaty right to the use of their resources and lands. But that doesn't say that you can suddenly confiscate assets paid for by ratepayers over decades and maybe centuries and put them towards completely different management. So that's what happens under the so-called co-governance. Co-governance sounds harmless. When you go into the details, you see it's everything but. The idea is actually mentioned in Hepuapua, the document that in time, we might even see some extra water rates charged for the benefit of Maori. So first you put them onto the boards and you make them the effective governance of these entities. And afterwards you might even introduce in a rate and actually use that to pay for some Maori entity. So, as I said, I'm, I'm not a great fan of me engaging in race debates, but you can't avoid them anymore these days in New Zealand. And I find this dangerous and disturbing because basically it goes to the heart of our representative democratic model. And New Zealanders, I think, are basically sharing these concerns, but they are just as careful as I am talking about them because nobody wants to be called a racist. By the way, one thing I would also say, again, I think if you talk to ordinary Maori, 
they are probably just as unhappy about it as ordinary non-Mari. This is not a race division issue, really. It is something just driven politically by this government. You, I think you already answered the question I was about to ask you partly, but what do everyday New Zealanders feel about this? Are they, are they, are they happy to go along with it or, or, or are they not? Or They are not because they're becoming increasingly grumpy, as opinion polls tell us. So when uh, 50% of the country now says we're going in the wrong direction and 36% think it's still the right direction, but that value was 77%, in the April 2020 lockdown, you can see that something has changed. So it dawns on people that something is not quite right. The three waters issue is probably the only issue where this dissent is now being felt properly. Uh, there was a tour organized by our taxpayers union. They traveled to, I think, 55 places around New Zealand and had fantastic town hall meetings with hundreds of people. The reason why it was easier to object to three waters was because you could actually nominally object to the policy on you know, basic policy grounds. You didn't have to talk too much about Mario. You could just say, well, actually, this is a council asset. You can't just steal it from us. The subtext of that was, of course, something else. But um, these questions are really hard to discuss. And in some cases, the Maurification actually happens without the public even noticing. So if you haven't followed the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, please do. You will find this very entertaining. So here we have a Reserve Bank that actually likens itself to a Maori tree god. I'm not making it up. One of the first documents that Governor Orr published back in 2018 was a document over more than 40 pages explaining why the Reserve Bank of New Zealand is the Tanemahuta of New Zealand's financial system. Has anyone heard here of Tanemahuta? No, Tanamahuta is a Maori god. It's a tree god. It's a big tree. There's also a tree actually somewhere in Northland, a big kauri, a thousand years old. Um, so these are the really, really big trees in New Zealand. And there is the Maori creation myth that Tanamahuta actually separated earth and sky because he basically grew and pushed them apart. And thereby light got into the world. Now, the Reserve Bank takes this metaphor and says, we are Tanamahuta. They've actually developed a really nice diagram of you know, the Reserve Bank as a tree. And uh, there is the um, financial system, that's the sap. So the money is the sap running through the veins of the tree, or whatever you call it, I'm not a biologist. Um, and the bank really seriously thinks it's Tanamahuta. And everything now has to be done in accordance with Tanamahuta. They've even installed a Tanamahuta at the entrance of the Reserve Bank. And every morning, all employees are supposed to go past Tanamahuta and actually say, we are the Reserve Bank, that does Tanamahuta. And the Deputy Governor Christian Hawksby actually delivered a speech about a year ago. Um, and the speech was entitled, The Future is Bowery. The governor actually delivered a speech, which I also wrote up in the um, Australian a few weeks ago, um, a conference of international central bankers. And you would kind of think, well, this is a time of inflation and stagflation, perhaps. And there are really interesting things happening in the world economy. Governor Orr delivers a speech why we chose Te Ao Maori and ignores all of that and talks about his Reserve Bank's commitment to indigenous affairs. Let's talk about the economy. I mean, the thing that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand should be dealing with, monetary policy. You've been critical of of the way they've handled monetary policy probably, I guess, since the financial crisis of 2008, keeping money cheap, uh, in effect printing money for the last few years, 
I'm, I haven't been that critical of the Reserve Bank before. I think actually New Zealand had a really decent Reserve Bank with decent Reserve Bank governors going back to the times of Don Brash. And um, the last governor, Graham Wheeler, um, decent public servant kind of guy. Um, we hosted him once at an event, and I, I hope Graham won't mind me saying that he was in the best sense of the word boring. <laughs> and that's a compliment because central bankers are supposed to be boring. And um, unfortunately, Adrian Orr is not boring. The problem with the Reserve Bank is actually, because they were so busy with climate change and Maori affairs and everything else, and by the way, they were so busy, they needed so much more staff. You know, they hired 140 people. They went from 280 to 420 within four years. I have no idea what these people do. I think the majority work in comms. Um, so they really didn't focus on inflation anymore. They completely gave it up. On top of that, the government also gave the Reserve Bank a different mandate. So previously, it was price stability. Um, initially, that was between 0 and 2% inflation. And then a few years ago, government changed to 1 to 3 but basically, it was price stability. Now the government says it has to be also long-term sustainable employment. Well, I mean, since the 1970s, economists have known that you don't have to make these choices because in the end, a reserve bank can only properly influence monetary stability and the unemployment rate will follow. So doesn't make sense. Then the government also told them, by the way, you're also in charge of house prices. Make sure house prices don't go up too much. Well, they have exploded, of course, in New Zealand. And then comes COVID and the Reserve Bank um, already um, in 2019, really keen on negative interest rates and unorthodox monetary policy. I mean, there was an interview in 2019 with the Reserve Bank governor that made me shudder, where he said, actually, the government doesn't spend enough on infrastructure. And he basically threatened, if you don't do it, I might just do QE, buy all the bonds and do it myself. And I thought, well, you're the Reserve Bank governor, you're not a finance minister. So he was keen to do all sorts of unorthodox stuff. And then comes COVID and suddenly he can. So New Zealand, before 2020, had a monetary base of about 15 billion New Zealand dollars. And that was appropriate for this small economy of a bit more than $300 billion GDP. Comes COVID, and it becomes $60 billion. So they um, had an increase, a fourfold increase in the monetary base. Because they panicked. They thought in April, the world's coming to an end. We have a GFC again. We have to just stimulate and pump massive amounts of liquidity into markets. Yeah, okay. And then on about day 12 of the lockdown, we realized that COVID is dying out in New Zealand. And actually, it's not that bad. Okay, international tourism doesn't happen anymore. And the international students are gone. But basically, we are surviving. It's not a GFC. The Reserve Bank actually doubled down, print more. They actually had one of the most generous QE programs in the world. So we have $20,000 of quantitative easing per head in New Zealand. That was what they wanted to do. But not content with that, they then had another policy on top. It's um, the funding for lending policy. So it's an invitation to all New Zealand banks. You can borrow from us because we want to keep you liquid. Okay, that makes sense in a crisis. But you can borrow from us at the OCR, so the official cash rate. And that was zero, basically. So invitation, you take money for three years and you banks basically pocket the difference between what you don't pay and what you charge your customers. It's not so good, I would say. In normal financial crisis, what happens is, of course, you say you can borrow unlimited quantities because that's what we're here for. We are the lender of last resort. But you borrow at the swap rate or you borrow at a penalty rate, but we don't just give the money away. Final point. 
they also got an indemnity from the Minister of Finance. So for their QE program, they got an indemnity, which basically meant that the minister said, whatever um, losses you incur from the QE program will basically compensate you. Well, the losses have now gone up to $8 billion. And without the indemnity, our Reserve Bank would be bankrupt, insolvent. So next point. So the crisis is over. They're still stimulating. By the way, the monetary base, even though this crisis, the COVID crisis is over, is still going up in New Zealand, where other central banks are now trying to taper and get out of this stuff. And we're still sitting at $60 billion monetary base. So on $60 billion monetary base, to have this trickle down and get reflected in the price level, which it will. I mean, this is basic economics. It would imply 20 years of 7% inflation. It's basically baked in unless the Reserve Bank changes course and tries to reduce the cash it provided to the economy. And it doesn't. So seriously, you're looking at a Reserve Bank that has completely lost the plot, that has lost every credibility for proper financial management, monetary management. And the problem with that is, of course, now that they haven't got the credibility anymore, they have to work twice as hard. So when you read stories in our papers here um, that... The RBNZ is ahead of the curve. Before any other central bank in the world, before the RBA, we are really getting tough on inflation fighting and actually they deserve praise. Well, you know what? They're clearing up their own mistakes. They're cleaning up after themselves. And now they're getting praise for that. I mean, you must be kidding. The whole thing is ridiculous and it's caused by a reserve bank governor that has simply not focused on his main task, price stability. Just a couple of topics before we wrap up. China, of course, is ever-present in our our discussions these days. Do, do you think that New Zealand government has taken this the threat of China with enough degree of seriousness? And uh, is there any suggestion that you might have introduced, say, a navy or an army or something like that? To uh, <laughs> I'm being facetious, of course, but Adam Bant, the Greens leader here, held up New Zealand Defence Force as the model that we should follow, which probably suggests that it's probably not quite adequate. It would be a very nice army then. Um, yeah, defence is a bit of a problem. I had a column on that in the Australian as well, just comparing New Zealand to Germany when it comes to defence spending and dependence on questionable countries. I think the countries actually have a lot in common. Um, yeah, New Zealand recently developed that there is China, and uh, we discovered that. I mean, our foreign minister doesn't really like traveling. That's a bit of a problem. So in her first week in the job, Penny Wong actually visited more countries than Nanayama and Huta had in the last couple of years. But that's, of course, what happens when you close your border. It makes it really difficult. Um, no, we were totally surprised by what happened with the Solomon Islands. I think the Australians were, of course, also surprised. Um, we have completely lost the plot in the region. We were supposed to have a Pacific reset. That was the only thing I think that Winston Peters got right in the last government where he said we have to focus more on the Pacific and our island neighbors. But this current government um, was unfortunately way too naive on China, but not too dissimilar, of course, from the national government. They always took a very China-friendly policy um, perspective on that. And now, unfortunately, we realize how irresponsible that was. There was actually an interesting story in one New Zealand um, political newsletter this morning about defense spending. So we spend about 1.6% of GDP on our defense. Um, the NATO target is two. I think Australia spends about 2.5% from memory. I think the total spend on the military is about $48 billion New Zealand dollars in Australia's case, and New Zealand spends about 25 
Some of our airplanes are more than 60 years old in our Air Force. The Prime Minister travels on a 757 that's 30 years old, was bought from a Dutch budget airline, and uh, it keeps breaking down. So on her recent trip around Asia, um, there were five legs in, of the trip, you know, Singapore and Japan and forgotten where else she went. And there was a hearing in our select defense select committee yesterday where um, a New Zealand Air Force um, person, Marshall, said, um, and the 757 actually managed the whole trip without a single breakdown. That's not normal. <laughs> and the journalists, actually, who traveled with our prime minister to the Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum, which is happening tomorrow here in Sydney, were advised before traveling with the prime minister they should actually make some commercial flight bookings as well because they couldn't guarantee they could fly with the prime minister on the government Air Force jet. That basically tells you everything you need to know. We've got a massive problem with our defense forces. We haven't taken them seriously. We haven't invested in them, and now we're totally defenseless. I think we have two frigates. One is currently being repaired. Uh, we have a few um, Poseidon um, aircraft um, surveillance aircraft but they are 60 years old so they have to be replaced i'm not sure whether we have any working fighter jets it is a disaster zone and china i think is um, of course a potential threat that should be taken seriously new zealand could never defend itself against a foreign invasion because we are simply too small we have five million people on a relatively large geographical mass but at the very least we should be pulling our weight and we don't even do that and I'm sorry, by the way, that I'm talking too much about all of these issues because I would have liked to talk about our failures in education as well. And um, there are many other areas that would deserve attention as well. This is an all-round omni-shambles policy disaster we are seeing across the ditch. Okay, well, let's try and have an optimistic ending. Uh, where's the fix in all this? Or, or have things just slid so far? that New Zealand has only one really good institution left, and that's the New Zealand Initiative. So if, if you are looking for a policy shop with ideas on how to fix most of our problems, there's a high likelihood we would have written a paper about it in the last decade. We are waiting for that one euro politician that comes to us, goes to our library, and takes all of the reports with him. We are seeing elements of that with Christopher Luxon because we see our education policy recommendations reflected in what the National Party is doing. We also see it, of course, in ACT, um, our small liberal party. They are running with some of our ideas on decentralization, on strengthening local government by providing better incentives, fiscal incentives to local government. So there are ideas on how you could turn this country around. We have developed them. We now need a politician to implement them. That's probably the most optimistic you get me tonight. Oliver, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.